You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we're going to make history, because we're going to be talking about history. We're talking about how history is done, and especially in the area of the New Testament, because this is such a controversial area, and it's that way for Christians and non-Christians both. And we need someone to guide us in this area. And the person I've brought on is someone that Mike Lacona recommended to me. Her name is Beth Shepard. She holds a PhD in New Testament studies from the University of Sheffield and serves as the director of the Duke Divinity School Library and also teaches New Testament courses. Her research interests include not only library administration and practice, but also the fourth gospel. She is particularly intrigued by the ins and outs of everyday life for early Christians. Her dual research agenda is reflecting the diversity of journals in which her recent articles have appeared, including Theological Librarianship and Sapentia Logos. She has written a book entitled The Craft of History for the Study of the New Testament, which is what we are going to be talking about today. Proud to coming to Duke, Shepard directed the library and taught New Testament courses at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. Although a United Methodist layperson, Shepherd has pastored in rural United Methodist congregations and continues to preach and teach in church settings when called upon to do so. Her orientation towards service is also present in her work in the academy where she is a member of the editorial team for the European Studies on Christian Origins series published by Continuum. Dr. Shepherd, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you very much, Nick. Uh, you're most gracious to invite me to uh, participate on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, send some things to Mike afterwards, because he's the one who recommended you. All right. Well, if my audience doesn't know much about you, how is it that you got to be doing what you're doing? Oh, well, I have a very uh, long history of love for the Bible. I began in undergraduate uh, taking uh, a religion and classical Greek degree in the very first thing they made me translate once I got in Upper Greek was the prologue of the Gospel of John. And from that time on, I've been, I've been hooked on, on working with uh, the Gospels and uh, trying to figure out more about, about my faith and the faith of others. It's just always been a, a joyful journey. Mm-hmm. I, I ended up um, going to Princeton Theological Seminary to get a Master's of Divinity degree where I focused on New Testament uh, as my, my master's degree subject. And at, at Sheffield, I, I ended up traveling to Sheffield, which is in England, uh, with my, my husband, who was studying at the same time in the history department. And oddly enough, since he was in the history department 
uh, and I was in the Bible department. Uh, the history department there, of course, he had um, uh, fellow students who were studying a little bit of everything. They would study things like, you know, World War II and um, the history of the British Isles and that sort of thing. But oddly enough, he would come back and talk to me about this course he had called historiography, or it was basically how to do history. And what he was learning in the course and the um, scholars he was reading uh, had no bearing on what I was learning and doing in biblical studies. And I, I kept asking myself, why is he learning all of this stuff about how to do history professionally as a history PhD student, and we're not learning the same thing in the biblical studies department. Mm -hmm. So when I got back to the United States, I uh, was working on a library degree because I ended up landing and, and working in a, in a library, with, even though I have my doctorate in, in Bible. And I had a chance uh, at library school to take a course at Emporia State University in Kansas, in their department of history. And so I chose to, to take the uh, historiography course there and I got to, to read and, and learn uh, about the discipline of how, having to do history. And so in a way, my book craft of history is just uh, my way of exploring what would it mean to apply some of the techniques and methods that I learned in those classes and that, People who go and become uh, historians in fields outside of Bible, uh, what would it would look to have those those approaches applied to Bible? And that's pretty much where I am and what I've done and uh, why I'm interested in the subject. <laughs> yeah, I, I can tell when you talk about being a librarian and studying library sciences and things of that sort, you're, you're obviously doing the work of God right there. <laughs> Uh, yes, it, it's fun. Uh, we, I actually belong to a group called the American Theological Library Association. Mm -hmm. and, uh, theological librarianship um, uh, is a discipline in and of itself. What is the difference, we always ask, between being a regular librarian and a librarian uh, who collects and curates uh, materials about the faith and who makes those materials uh, available to others about the faith. And it's not just about the collection. It's about our whole attitude uh, of service and our understanding that what we're doing is a, a theological calling. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's uh, one of the, if, if I've got time to, to talk about what the difference might be between mm -hmm. a regular librarian, uh, when it comes to professors, at least at, um, who are retiring Sometimes schools uh, are very happy to say uh, goodbye, thank you for contributing 20 years here, but now we need your parking space. Uh, by contrast, in uh, theological librarianship, the library steps up at the plate when a, a professor is retiring and begins to ask, uh, you've got so much, you've studied so much, um, you've done so much uh, on behalf of uh, your ministry. Is there a way now that we as a library can help you transition into your continued work or the next phase of your work? Mm. And so we 
uh, sometimes provide library spaces for faculty to emeritus faculty to work. Uh, we might provide forums for them to speak and continue to share their knowledge. Uh, we might assist them on uh, as they're moving from their office to off-campus sites to uh, uh, pare down their library and uh, uh, provide them uh, library access. In, in short, in, in a theological library, the pastoral concerns are always foremost in dealing with, with uh, those who come in our circles. We're not just vending books and checking them out and getting them back. We're, we're actually concerned about, about the people and the mission. Yeah, I just know that whenever we moved here, my wife and I have lived in Atlanta for a little over a year. One of the first things I did was find out where is the local library, and I use it extensively. All right. Now, I was like to ask you, since you got a PhD in New Testament, that there don't seem to be many female scholars that I see in the field from Tom Tom. We've had Lynn Kowick on, for instance, but it seems like it, it's kind of an exception. What's it like being a female scholar in the field? Um, I think it's a, a generational thing. Uh, when I was uh, working on a, a master's degree in um, uh, religious uh, uh, application and arts at Isle of School of Theology, where I was for a few years after I finished up at Princeton, I was the only female in the biblical studies department. And when I was at Princeton uh, doing my MDiv, I was uh, um, given permission to attend and participate in some of the doctoral study courses there. And I was the only female there. But I guess for me, it never really bothered me because... Mm. I grew up in a small rural community in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and was used to women doing non-typical things. Um, mm-hmm. Growing up on a farm, when it starts to rain and the hay has to come in so it doesn't get ruined by the rain, um, my mother would race out of the house and hop on the tractor and my my, my dad would be uh, working on the baler and uh, my sister and I would see both of our parents working to get the, the crops in. Mm-hmm. And so gender roles didn't really uh, make much sense to me. Uh, the same thing happened with our mail carrier. I went to college and I would talk about our, our mail lady. Uh, uh, Mrs., Mrs. Dunbar was wonderful and delivered our mail, but that's because Mr. Dunbar actually worked on his farm during the day and so Mrs. Dunbar carried the mail to our community. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I think it predisposed me to not be uh, taken aback by being the only female in some circumstances or doing things that, that maybe other women didn't think necessarily to do. Mm-hmm. So when I was at school, you know, I, I would do things in Bible and not think twice about it. But there were other female students around in Christian education or in other majors. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, when I, I look at the uh, doctoral students in seminaries, there's more balance. I know at Duke we have a, a number of women studying doctorates in the Department of Bible, just mm-hmm. as, as many men, actually, I believe. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I remember when my roommate and I, before we, before I got married to Audi, we, when we moved to Charlotte, it was his mother who came and helped him. They live on a farm in Missouri, and she works very hard. I remember him telling me about some conditions she was having and such, and he said, so you think you're going to be able to get her to take it easy? No. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. Now, when we were talking about uh, historiography and such, and you know, I brought up his name before, but I, I do have one about on page 95 of your book here, you talk about how historiography is coming increasingly into New Testament studies, and you, in fact, referred to Mike Lacona's book, The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach. And I did get in touch with him immediately when I read that. He said, yeah, that's how I got in touch with her to begin with. Um, when you read that book, for instance, and what struck you as different that showed historiography going on that you weren't used to seeing? In that book, uh, uh, Mike uh, is very good about understanding that uh, historiography isn't always necessarily done the same way by the same people, Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, different people have different approaches, and that what has been done in the field of biblical studies uh, his experience was very much similar to mine. Uh, what, what he learned as a, a student of history uh, uh, was different from what he was encountering as a student in Bible as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, he remarked particularly about uh, uh, that, that break. What I like about, about uh, uh, Mike's book in particular is that studying history um, – doesn't necessarily, or using methods to study history or using approaches to study history, doesn't necessarily have to uh, uh, damage someone's faith. Right. Uh, I think I think there's a difference. Um, not 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 addressing Mike's book, but but this is this is me here. I think that there's a difference between um, faith seeking understanding. And using history to understand and and broaden a portrait of uh, Jesus, who was somebody who lived and, and walked the earth, um, and adding details, uh, mm. and actually having uh, proof. Um, faith, faith in a way, is about having some. Uh, uh, foggy ends where we. We need to make a leap of faith. Knowledge is actually knowing. And if we, if we knew 100% about the past, we wouldn't have a, a religion as a, a faith-based thing. We would have knowledge. And at, at that point, we have knowledge of, say, the chemical composition of you know, water H two O, but it doesn't necessarily. It, it's it's the leap of knowing that water of our baptism uh, signifies something uh, deeper about our relationship with the divine that makes uh, water uh, an element of faith. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, uh, you know, we could... I, I can just picture both some skeptics out there saying, See? There you go. It's all just probable. But this isn't a pro- problem with religious history. Is it mean we have the exact same thing if we were studying the history of the British Isles, like you mentioned, or World War II, or anything else? This is our history, isn't it? Yes, it, it is, absolutely. Um, there is, for example, the, the Doomsday Book from Medieval History uh, mentions uh, families and events that occurred in medieval, uh, medieval Europe. And there's only one mention of someone's name in the Doomsday Book that is the only knowledge we have of that person from history. Uh, just because we only have that one mention doesn't mean that person never existed. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's sort of like the question of if a tree falls in the forest and nobody sees it, did it still fall? Mm-hmm. Or if only one person sees it, um, can we believe that person? Mm-hmm. Um, that That's sort of the question we have with the Gospels. We have four witnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and sometimes the question is, uh, uh, were they even in the forest to, to hear the tree? Um, if they were in the forest, how can we believe them? Mm. Uh, um, it, it's the same with, with any sort of history, be it the Doomsday Book or, or the Gospels. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, now, of course, there are some things in history that, you know, as much as we talk about probable, there are also details that sometimes we say, you know, this is so probable, we don't even dispute it. It's pretty much absolutely certain. No one would say, for instance, where it's probable that Alexander the Great lived. If you start saying, I'm, I'm not sure if Alexander the Great was a real person, most people would probably look, especially in history, and say, you know, you go uh, sit over there, okay, we're having a real discussion here. And I say this because one of the activities I engage in a lot of times when I'm online is dealing with mythicists, the people who say Jesus never even existed. Yes, I must be a masochist in some ways, of sorts. And, you know, we, I, I find the standards for proof sometimes people make for arguments in history are absolutely ridiculous, and they wouldn't be used anywhere else for any other figure. But as soon as it's someone religious or someone something with Jesus... The standards change entirely. Um, um, yes, Nick, you, you bring up a very good point. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess the question is, how much evidence is enough? Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're thinking about Alexander the Great, um, there are coins all over the place in the ancient world that, that archaeologists have found with his, his figure uh, on them. There are... Uh, all sorts of archaeological pieces of evidence that are, are mentioned in texts and literature. When, when it comes to, to Jesus, I mean, Jesus was essentially, when he, he began ministering, uh, working, I mean, Alexander the Great marched across, you know, continents. Mm. By contrast, Jesus was essentially a, a person who, lived and ministered and worked in an area the size of the state of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, how many of us actually know something about New Jersey's local history and, and, and local, uh, local heroes and uh, 
could even name, for example, who was the uh, mayor of Trenton in 1997. All right, so right on the tip of my tongue here, okay? <laughs> I, 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 uh, don't get me wrong, I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, um, I have a, a relative who, who lives in, in Trenton and is a little child. I would go in and, and visit my, my relatives in, 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 in Teaneck, New Jersey, in the area. But I, I couldn't tell you who was mayor back then. I mean, mm-hmm. I was I was 12 years old and interested in other things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you, you look at, at um, Jesus and think about him as being a figure who was, um, when the disciples were following him, he was just their teacher. Right. They, they didn't necessarily know that Christianity was going to, you know, be something of interest for the whole world. I mean, it took the book of of Acts for us to see Christianity really starting to spread uh, beyond the region. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, unlike Alexander the Great, where you have lots of lots of evidence um, uh, because he he was immediately on the world stage by marching across across it. Uh, Jesus uh, was actually uh, in Israel, which was a little backwater in the empire, uh, working from there, which is is amazing and miraculous in its own thing, own mm. right, and should be inspiration to us right. that that Jesus that that God uses um, not the famous, not the the most visual not the the biggest bang, but is able to use the humble and the small and the the uh, obscure to uh, move forward God's kingdom. Yeah, when I, I talk with people and I say, well, you know, why didn't more contemporary people mention Jesus of a time? And I say, look, he was in essence a nobody back in this time. No one in Rome would have cared about him. He was a miracle worker, which would mean he was seen as a huckster, much like the televangelist we see on TV. He never went to battle, never ran for office, never wrote a book, and he was crucified on top of that. It doesn't surprise me so few people mention Jesus. It surprises me anyone at all mentioned him. Exactly. I mean, that you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think another great danger that we have is that whenever we kind of have water cooler talk about the New Testament and such, that everyone comes, unfortunately, and the idea of bias is too easy to be thrown around. And both ways it can be thrown, that a Christian can say to someone who's a New Testament, about someone who's a New Testament scholar, but who's an atheist, when say, where they have a bias against miracles, so you can't really trust their work. And then a skeptic can look at a Christian and say, yeah, well, they believe the Bible is the word of God, so you can't really trust their work either. Well, you know, I think bias is something uh, you can't get away with it from. It's, it's not just in history. Mm-hmm. Um, Every field has bias. Uh, let me give you an example from, from library studies. Every once in a while in library studies, someone will do a, a study about how 
people are using resources in a library. And so they'll set up an experiment and they'll interview people and they will begin saying things like, okay, uh, what books did you use to write this paper and how Mm. did you find the information? And then they'll uh, put together their results. But even though that looks like a scientific experiment and looks like there should it should be free of bias. You're doing interviews. You're asking the same questions of, of, of everyone you're interviewing. There is bias involved. Uh, for example, uh, depending on whether or not you're asking the questions in one library of one special population who all look, think, and have the same demographics, versus whether or not you would ask the same set of questions in a library down the street that has a different uh, demographic base, uh, mm-hmm. excuse your results. Mm-hmm. Um, then which people are more inclined to participate? I mean, because you can't necessarily ask questions of somebody who doesn't want to answer. Right. So, Uh, Are all the people who are choosing to answer the question, isn't there some amount of bias built in there because they are already predisposed to think and act uh, in ways common to each other that those who don't want to participate in the experiment uh, are slightly different. Mm -hmm. And so you've got selector bias and you've got participant bias and, uh, uh, that's even in the field of library studies that has nothing to do with Bible or even history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think to some degree, uh, whenever uh, one goes throughout one's life, there's bias in everything yeah. one says or does or, mm-hmm. or thinks. Yeah. Uh, you can eliminate it as much as you can, but you can never eliminate it completely. Yeah, and uh, I think if any of us approaches a person of Jesus, no matter what, and says... We're going to be absolutely neutral on this. We're just fooling ourselves. But what I tell people often in discussion is like, you don't play the bias card until you have some real data that you can show that the person is having the bias influence the data. Because until then, I say that bias is just an excuse thrown out then to avoid you and the data. Data is the same. People have biases. Data doesn't. Right. Data doesn't, but depending on which data you select, that's where the bias comes in. Mm -hmm. You may have, uh, uh, even uh, when any author is asked to write a book, uh, oftentimes the, the editors or the publishers will come back and say, this is great. We love that you've written a 200 word, a 200,000 word manuscript. However, Nobody is going to read 200,000 words. Can you cut it down to 100,000 words? You mean mean some people really don't read 200,000 words? (laughs) 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 Well, some people read many fewer than that. There are statistics that something like Mm. the average book, uh, uh, the average book is only read I forget where I saw the statistic in library science somewhere is only read cover, but to cover uh, by maybe two people. Wow. Uh, Other people will pick it up and read portions of it, 
or they'll read a chapter out of it, or they might read the introduction but go no further. But actually sitting down from cover to cover. I mean, other than an academic book where you have reviewers that, uh, in theory, have to read it from cover to cover in order to complete a review, uh, uh, most people uh, won't necessarily read a whole book. Yeah, I, I, I was just throwing in some humor on my book because I, I could read a 200,000-page book and thoroughly enjoy it. Whenever I've gone to the library and I've used Inner Library Loan, which is a lifeline for me there in Italian, and I say, now this book has to be back, may give me a date, like a, about a month and a half from now. I say, really? It takes some people that long to read a book? Really? Yes, yes, it does. Well, but the thing is, too, uh, being a library uh, director, I have access to t- statistics on circulation. Mm-hmm. And it always surprised me that uh, I'd see a book that might circulate seven, eight, or nine times. But the book next to it on the shelf might only circulate once or twice in the mm-hmm. same period, especially if students had a, a term paper to write. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would occasionally go down to the, the shelves and look at the shelf to see why was something circulating more than something else. And invariably, the book that was the thinner book yes. would get checked out more. Mm-hmm. Uh, even even if it was an older book and not as current or or for some other reasons, simply because it was thin. And the students, of course, were, you know, it's the night before, and they've waited until last minute to write a paper. And so they were picking, you know, as many small, thin resources as they could to fill up their bibliography because they mm. didn't have time the night before to read uh, full books. Yeah. You know, when you're talking about how we can look at all the data differently, this is, uh, is the same because even if you have the exact same data and everyone can agree on the exact same data, the interpretation is still going to be different because people have different interests and motivations and opinions they bring to the table beforehand. I mean, when uh, Labor Day comes around, it's a a tradition, a tradition that I managed to marry into that uh, the Habermas's Gary and his wife in Blaconas, Mike and his wife get together, and now the Peters get together as well, me and my wife. And so sometimes Gary and Mike and I will go out together, sit on the back porch or something, and we'll just talk shop, which means we're talking resurrection most of the time or something related to apologetics. And we'll by and large all agree on the data but we can have vastly different ways of approaching things, and there we can have three totally different opinions at the same time. And when we watch each other's do debates and such, we critique one another in debates. Say, yeah, I think you should have said this. Now, I don't think that's a good argument. We have the exact same conclusion. We have pretty much the same data, and yet there are still vast differences many times. Yes, I, I think that, that that experience illustrates uh, very well uh, what the issue is in history. Mm-hmm. I sometimes talk to my students in, in New Testament introductory courses about what I, I uh, flippantly call the car crash uh, view of the Gospels. And on the, on the blackboard, or actually they're now whiteboards these days, I draw uh, a crossroads. And in the four corners of the crossroads, I draw 
um, different people waiting to cross the road. So at one corner, there might be a lawyer getting ready to cross the road. In another corner, there might be a woman pushing uh, a baby carriage. Uh, another corner might have a, um, uh, a, a salesman for insurance, life insurance. And the final corner might have um, a, a, a college professor. And imagine they see an accident occur in the center of that crossroad. Mm-hmm. Each one of them sees the same accident, but if they're interviewed by the police who are doing a police report, um, they're going to say different things. Some of it is from the angle at which they were looking. If they're all mm-hmm. if standing on the north corner and one is standing on the south corner, they may have seen a different detail. Like one of them may have seen a basketball roll across the roll across the uh, the intersection, but another one didn't. Um, then, because one is uh, trained in insurance, one might be looking for and trained to spot details that. Uh, one of the others on the corner wouldn't be looking for or trained to spot. And so their four accounts of the same incident will be quite different, even if they are interviewed by the police moments after the accident happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean. and so why would we think uh, history and having four Gospels would function much differently? Yeah. I mean, in fact, when you were talking about, for instance, the mother with her stroller and such, one of the things I was saying is this lady might not be paying so much attention to the details of the accident because if something's going on with that, her first priority is my baby has to be safe and that's what she's going to be watching, for instance. Yeah, exactly. And so she might have caught some of the details but might not catch other details. Mm-hmm. Or, or might, you know, when the child has questions afterward, um, she might... Um, try to de-emphasize, you know, uh, um, if someone was, God forbid, hurt and there was blood and gore, she might try to de-emphasize that so the child won't have nightmares afterwards. Right. Um, so is it is it any wonder that we have four different Gospels that differ and have similarities uh, as as the four different writers are uh, recounting their experiences with Jesus uh, to uh, audiences that are different congregations in, in have different situations uh, that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same like people who are lectionary preachers. There are churches where everybody is given the same passage of scripture to preach on on a given Sunday. Right. And five different churches will have five completely different sermons mm-hmm. on the same text. Right. And, you know, that's because they're, in theory, the, I mean, one way to look at it is the Holy Spirit uh, helps influence the pastors to to give each particular congregation what, what they need to hear. Yeah. And it's also important that because one of the things you stress out is that we can't cover everything in the field. I'm thinking about two different things. I've been in a conversation with someone recently talking about 
New Testament offer shipping. He said, okay, well, first, I want to know what are your views on Adam and Eve, the flood, macro-revolution, offership of the Gospels, etc., etc., etc. I said, look, I'll give you my opinion on many of these, but in many cases, it's just my opinion. I mean, you go with the Old Testament, for instance... I think the Old Testament is extremely important. We should study it. I'll read some good books in the Old Testament, but it is not my main area of focus, so take everything I say with a grain of salt. And even when you stick to New Testament studies, uh, Mike, for instance, has said before that if someone came to him with objections of mythicism, for instance, he'd probably hand it right over to me because I spend more time looking at that because in the scholarly world, that's just not studied as much on the internet, you kind of have to know <laughs> about it. So, it, it can seem that a lot of people think that you can just learn about everything in history immediately, and you can't. Uh, no, you can't. I mean, you can have um, uh, generalists or universal history where you, like an, an encyclopedia mm-hmm. is a example of a general or a universal history because it tries to write an article that's not very in-depth about just about everything. Uh, but yet you can have a specialist history, which is a biography um, that deals with a single individual. And even then, you can have specialist biographies that further detail things, like um, you can have a biography that deals with just a single year of a person's life or, or a single aspect of a person. Like I would imagine there is a biography somewhere out there on, uh, Princess Diana that focuses on um, her charitable uh, acts and the charity mm-hmm. she saw. That's just one small slice of of her life. It's not the whole thing. And in a way, when you think about it, the gospel writers did the same thing. The fourth gospel ends with, you know, Jesus did many other works which are not recorded in this book. And uh, if they were all recorded, the world could not contain the the, the works that, that would, would be written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, when one of the things that I find when you're dealing with people, especially people on the internet and such, is uh, I've recently bought a book on Kindle. I haven't started yet, but from two very good reliable friends who've read it already, it's excellent. It's by a guy named Tom Nichols. I think he used to work in the intelligence department of the government and such, called The Death of Expertise. And how we've lived, we live now, I think, in a world where everyone thinks that they can be an expert immediately because, hey, look, I Googled something, and hey, I read this on Wikipedia, by golly, it has to be true and such. And as someone who deals with library science, do you encounter this thing pretty often, and do you think it's really something we should be concerned about? Um, I think that even though um, there are a lot of people that are just taking in surface uh, information, uh, there are still people out there that uh, are inclined to uh, dig into something in depth. Mm -hmm. When you look at a given Wikipedia article, it is uh, the surface encyclopedia article, but oftentimes... Uh, at the base of the uh, Wikipedia article, they do cite further sources mm-hmm. or, or links out to further sources where uh, there is more and more and more detail or a narrower scope of the study. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that eventually 
someone who is really, really curious uh, will keep digging into mm. a single subject. Mm. Uh, I agree with that, but I think the thing is that too many people nowadays just don't do that and think that if I can look something up on Google and if I can just stick with the internet and never have to go to a library and read any books, I can be just as informed as someone else in the field who's who's trained, who's specialized, who studies this stuff seriously. And to me, it just seems like a deadly mistake in research. Well, you know, I, I think it's, it's a, a question of what is the difference between reading one book on a subject and reading a hundred books on a subject? Mm-hmm. Right. And to some extent, the, the core in a hundred books is going to be similar. You will have, uh, a lot of facts that start repeating themselves over and over itself again, mm. a wow. lot of, of data, but it's how the data is combined or that last piece of data that someone else hasn't mentioned mm-hmm. uh, that the specialist uh, will have in his or her um, uh, pocketbook of details that somebody who's only read one study won't have. Yeah. And I don't know that there's a, a danger in that. I think there's a maybe a, a presumption in not understanding that that's how uh, research works, mm-hmm. uh, and that that uh, assuming that if you've read one thing, you've read it all, because it you know someone somewhere may have dug up something that no one else yet has discovered or thought about. And I think there's value in in. Uh, reading all that stuff just mm. to find the nuggets. Yeah. And when it comes to our reading, I think another great mistake that we can make if people who seriously study and debate and argue this stuff regularly is it's too easy, and this is for people on both sides of any debate, to read only material that agrees with you already. Some uh, Someone's asked people in a debate and such as, okay, when was the last time you read an academic work on this subject, a serious academic work, that disagreed with you? I have so many people so many times say to me, well, you know, I know this is what you believe. If you go and you just read what Bart Ehrman says, look, I read what Bart Ehrman says, okay? As soon as he has a new book out, I'm going and I'm ordering it on my Kindle immediately so I don't have to wait a second and I can read it. I know what the other side says. And I, I don't think you can really consider yourself a real researcher into a position if you're not reading both sides on that position. I agree with you completely, Nick. I think you've, you've made a, a a very valid point. You know, there is uh, informed argument where you considered and listened, and then there's, um, I think, uh, bombast where you're just arguing for, for the sake of, of arguing. The question to me is what is the ultimate purpose of argumentation? Is mm-hmm. argumentation uh, to allow people to uh, come to a compromise? Is it to allow people to convert one side to the other? Is it to uh, allow uh, for sensitivity to grow? Is it a, to allow each person to consider new things and be pushed uh, beyond their own comfort zone. 
Mm-hmm. When I went to seminary, uh, I am, my denomination is United Methodist. Right. And yet I chose to attend uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, which was Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people said to me, why, why aren't you going to a Methodist seminary? Uh, Drew is just up the street from, from Princeton, and uh, Drew in, I think, it, what is it, Madison, New Jersey, uh, uh, is United Methodist. Wouldn't you be more comfortable there? And it's true that there were things that I heard in classes that, kind of struck me as odd. I mean, the Presbyterians would, you know, in my theology classes would talk about this predestination thing, which I had never heard uh, mm-hmm. about when I was growing up uh, attail- attending daily church in uh, a Methodist church. I mean, we Methodists don't talk about predestination. Mm-hmm. And so I had to actually sit down and think, well, what do I or don't I like about the idea of predestination? Why don't I like it? Um, what do I think about that? And I grew because I had to wrestle with something that wasn't something to which I would have normally been exposed. Right. When when I was in Bible college, I remember I went, I just went to the nearest one nearby. And it turns out it was part of a restoration movement. And I heard some views there I had never heard before in studying the Bible. And a lot of them I thoroughly disagreed with, but I still do. I mean, we heard about, for instance, the whole baptismal regeneration, which for me was extremely troubling because I was at the time and still am extremely terrified of water. So I had never been baptized by immersion. I grew up more in the Methodist tradition also. So, yeah, we did the sprinkler and such. And... I, I, I'm just terrified of water. My wife can tell you, if you get me into a swimming pool, my logic and reason goes right out the window immediately, and I am panicking and convinced I'm about to die at any moment. But, oh, oh yeah, I'll also add in with that, I've got a steel rod strapped on my spine, so you can imagine baptism would be very hard. But at one point, I decided, you know what, I think I just need to do it. And we were attending a Methodist church at the time that actually had a baptistry, a full baptistry. And I talked to my pastor, and he agreed to me, and he understood I was terrified. So he said, I'm only, and he understood my back condition, and he said, I'm only going to take you under the bare minimum. And I did it. <laughs> Which later, someone asked me once, you realized, kind of stopping at the time, I said, did you feel any different after you got baptized? I said, you bet I did. I felt cold and wet. <laughs> um, and then when I went off to seminary, my seminary at the time, was premillennial dispensational. I'm an Orthodox preterist. And they said, you can attend here, just don't, you know, be evangelizing about your views. Although a few select people knew about it. It's very interesting. I was in a class once. We had a substitute professor in, and he decided he'd play eschatology jeopardy with us and divide us into two teams. And it came out in the class that I was the all-millennial and I was kicking tail with everyone in the class on every single question, practically. <laughs> and I, I volunteered in the library as well. And some students would come in talking about their research for eschatology class, not knowing my position. And they'd say, well, obviously, I'm going to do my research paper on preterism. 
and my ears would perk up, and I'd be going and say, and I'd just ask, so what do you think about it? Well, I just don't think it can answer such and such a question. And I didn't seem to think, oh, geez, if only I could tell you, you just really don't know right now, do you? Because it can answer that question as far as I was concerned. But it, it is very different to get to go and be confronted with a position that is really different from when you grew up in. And some people come to me and say, well, you see, your position is the ones that you got in Bible college and seminary. So no, no, I got some positions there, but not all of them. Exactly. Now, I think something we could also talk about with this is, and this might seem like a simple question to so many people, but I suspect you're going to think this is a very deep question and such, and that is, what is the purpose of doing history anyway? I think that, Nick, that's an excellent question. I think the purpose of, of doing history is to uh, broaden or thicken our uh, knowledge of the past. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that a reason why we do history uh, is to learn from our mistakes and understand that the people in the past mm -hmm. who were living and, and, and walking through the corridors of history aren't really different than ourselves. Mm -hmm. Every year I take students uh, from Duke Divinity School on trips to different Bible lands. So uh, in three years, uh, we've done Turkey uh, to do a, um, a trip to see the churches of Revelation. Uh, we've done uh, a trip to Israel. And this year we're doing a, a, an early Christianity trip to Rome to study things like the Roman catacombs and uh, the uh, uh, prison where Paul was. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, purportedly imprisoned when he left uh, the shores of, of Palestine and ended up uh, waiting for the emperor to uh, hear his case. All of those sort of places uh, are interesting, but it, it's more interesting that students tend to think something 2,000 years ago is slightly more primitive than our own time. And then they go and see the absolutely amazing artwork. They see glorious architecture and how complex the buildings were engineered. And they see uh, pathways and, and uh, roads and realize, goodness, the, the tarred road outside of my my residence isn't going to last 2,000 years. Look at this wonderfully engineered Roman roadbed uh, going through Laodicea. Mm. Uh, um, it, it's pretty amazing uh, because my road outside my house isn't going to survive 2,000 years. Right. Um, and so it, it, it helps to put uh, context and, and thicken a person's uh, uh, understanding of, of what – uh, went on. One of the things I want to show my students when we hit Pompeii this year uh, at the trip to Italy, on one of the houses there is a uh, a mural, uh, a fresco of someone dressed in white handing out loaves of bread. And it was often thought that this was a, a baker who was selling bread. 
and an ethno-historian who focuses on uh, everyday details of history. And we, in biblical studies, don't have a, a lot of ethno-historians mm-hmm. uh, amongst our ranks. Ethno-historians are interested in the history of everyday life. Like, what does a, a person do from the time they get up in the morning until they go to bed? And, and what sort of objects do they encounter? And what is the historical significance of each of the objects? And, and that sort of thing. Well, anyway, this picture of the person white, they, they began looking at uh, the white toga the person was, was wearing. And they realized that white togas aren't everyday wear, that they're usually reserved in the Roman world for special occasions, that if you look at all the other frescoes, people are wearing, you know, red or they're wearing, you know, different colors, uh, brown uh, neutral greens, all these other different colors. And then they figured out that the white toga is something that is typically worn when someone is standing as a candidate for a political office. It's called mm-hmm. the uh, toga candida. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you've got this white, white toga. And it was also typical when they began looking at bread for uh, candidates to um, uh, hand out uh, tokens so people would remember them. It was typical to hand out bread. Mm-hmm. Well, when you think about this, seeing this portrait of this man in a white toga handing out bread, who was probably standing for candidacy for some office in Pompeii uh, to be a, a political uh, liaison or or do some sort of political job. When you think about Jesus... In the Transfiguration, what color did, did Jesus' uh, robes uh, turn when he was transfigured? Clothes that looked as if they had been bleached white. Yes, exactly, bleached white. And when uh, Jesus fed the 5,000, what, what did he feed them? Bread and fish. Yes, and so would it be any difficulty uh, knowing that historical information uh, garnered from the portrait that is on the wall of Pompeii that you would think, huh, it's no wonder the disciples wouldn't really understand a Messiah who was not a political Messiah. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, would, would we understand why they would be confused? And so that history just helps to give broader context to the biblical story and what the people who might have been encountering Jesus might have been thinking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is not necessarily to say that Jesus was a politician, but that there may have been uh, political overtones to uh, Jesus standing up to the Roman way of doing things. Yeah, I've told people before, when you get to Matthew 4 and you read about Jesus going about preaching the good news of a kingdom and such, I said, if you weren't to compare it to how society is today, you could picture Jesus going around and saying, vote for me for your Messiah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Except Messiah wasn't necessarily an office that people right. had. They voted for back then. Right. So, yeah, so it, it, when you were talking about how things were so different, like, you know, we think they were so primitive. One of the examples I like to dabble in every now and then such is ancient and medieval science. Because so many people look and say, look, we are so scientifically enlightened. We know so much, and they didn't back then. And it's like, look, 
you go back and you look at what the ancients and medievals really knew about science, they make some blunders. Sure, absolutely, they sure did. But they got a lot of things right. And they got a lot of things right without the modern technology that we have today. Right. Although, I'm, I'm not so sure about that whole leeches thing. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the same thing is, you know, 200 years from now, people are going to look back at, at how we tried to, you know, cure cancer with radiation and, and chemo. And they're going to think, what did they do? Yeah. You know, because in 200 years, they, there may be a cure that's uh, vastly more simple than what we're attempting. Yeah, I, I saw some reasoning about some <clears throat> some company wanted to send a couple to the moon as a prize in 2018 for a little getaway and such. And, you know, for all we know, 100 years from now, people could be regularly making trips to the moon and thinking, gosh, this was a big deal for them back then. Exactly. <clears throat> now, I think also something I'd like to, from just a kind of caveat, because you did say that when you study through your eyes, they were people like us. But I also think in many ways, they were like us, but they were very different from us. In many ways, too. On April 29th, I'm going to have a Jason Georges on. He's a co-author of a book of Ministry and Honor of Shame Cultures. And like I said, when I talk with Mike and Gary and such about resurrection, more of my main interest is Honor of Shame Cultures because those are so fascinating to me and seeing the Bible in that perspective. And I tell people in discussions that, like, so many times you are going to read your culture in the New Testament and think people fought and lived their lives and went about their regular day-to-day thinking just like you. And they didn't. The cultures are vastly different. And if you misread the text and you read your own culture into it, you are not going to understand what's going on in the text. Well, I think you make a, an excellent point. One of my favorite things to, to talk about my students is the fact that, you know, here in the United States, growing up in Pennsylvania and even being here at Duke, it snows. And we associate snow with Christmas time. And so it's not weird for us to occasionally get Christmas cards where Mary and Joseph are on the donkey going through snow drifts on their way to, uh, on their way to Bethlehem at, at, you know, during the Advent season. Mm. Yet, uh, when you look at the climate of the Mediterranean area, the likelihood that it snowed is, is very minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that is not to say that it, it doesn't snow, but if it does snow, you're only going to have like an inch. On right. rare occasions, you're not going to have, you know, great mounds that you need to plow and are going to stick around for months at a time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just a function of folk, uh, taking their own geography and their own concept of, of the the time period in, in which uh, we celebrate the Jesus' birth and imposing it on, on the Mediterranean region. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, it's quite different. I, I've actually been in Israel in, in Jan, early January one year, and... Uh, uh, it, it was very pleasant. I, I only had on a light sweater, and, and I was enjoying the climate very much. It, it sounds wonderful to me right now here in Atlanta. It's 
still winter and it can be very warm outside and my wife and I are so different. She is very warm natured and I am very cold natured. And so I was just teasing her and say, isn't this weather just so wonderful? I mean, here we are in winter and it's 70 degrees outside. Just be quiet, okay? <laughs> you know, we are going to have a hot off our summers. Yeah, isn't it wonderful? <laughs> now, I'd like to remind everyone, since we're around the halfway point here, that uh, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest right now is Beth Shepard, and we're talking about her book, The Craft of History and the Study of the New Testament. Beth, you're here next week, where we've talked about him several times already this episode. He's coming on the show again. One of our favorite guests, my father-in-law, Mike Lacona, is going to be our guest next week. And he's going to be talking about his latest book, why are there differences in the Gospels? We we talked a little bit about Plutarch research back in 2014 when I interviewed him, but he's going to come back again, and we're going to be talking about his newest book out there. So <clears throat> if you're interested in that, tune in next week. For now, let's get back to to Dr. Shepard talking about the craft of history in the study of the New Testament. Now, unfortunately, historians, like anyone else, can make mistakes, believe it or not. And uh, I remember years ago reading the book Historical Fallacies by Fisher, David Fisher, I think it was. What are some of the mistakes that you think historians are most prone to make, especially when it comes to studying the historical Jesus? Um, I think that one of the the biggest mistakes that is easiest to make uh, is anachronism. Uh, Get the, the wrong time period and the wrong time frame uh, to apply to uh, Jesus or Jesus's time. Uh, one of the things that uh, I've often wondered uh, is I, I'll go to a site with my students, like Sephoris, which is just a, a few miles away from Nazareth, um, and it's very likely, indeed, that that Jesus traveled to Sephoris. Mm-hmm. Our, Sometimes they call it Zippori. Mm-hmm. And there's a theater there. And I, I once listened to a tour guide talk about how it might have been possible that Jesus watched uh, um, uh, plays or events in this one particular theater. Yet uh, the theater wasn't built until likely the late first, early second century. So mm-hmm. it, it wasn't built during Jesus' lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that kind of a a slight not quite knowing the date and the sequence when things actually happened uh, would be uh, a problem in history that is uh, an instance of anachronism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember. I'm also thinking right now about how uh, there are some things that I just want to check the basic facts on. I've actually recently come across one of the strangest arguments I've come across in debating with someone about their explanation of a historical Jesus who doesn't believe in the resurrection. He said, oh, it's pretty simple. The disciples use a poison of a puffer fish in order to, to fake Jesus' death, and then it's pretty much the swoon theory from there. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, I can't believe I'm hearing that. And my wife, when I told her that, just because I was like, honey, you won't believe what I just heard. And she asked the very first question that I would have wanted to ask her and said, do they even have those in that area? <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. 
in. Yeah. But, I, I don't know. I have not studied the fish of the range. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I looked, I didn't find any mention of there. And I, I'm also thinking that there was one person who wrote a, something about the, uh, the Gospel of Luke in the end with uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And I said, and this could have been meant to give, since we're going, since... This could have been meant to give it an idea later on of, for instance, that all roads lead to Rome. Well, that could make sense until you realize all roads lead to Rome wasn't a saying back then. And then it, it suddenly changes. Right. Right, right. So, I mean, there, there, I mean, people can make all sorts of different mistakes yeah, in history. Uh, mm. It's just, you know, part of what what is hmm. – I'm sorry, I'm, my, my mind is, is uh, skittering here. I was traveling late last night, and my, my plane was delayed and only hmm. arrived at, uh, at, at the airport two hours late. Hmm. Uh, but you can actually even have, have – problems with project design um, how did you uh, when I spoke about the experiment in the library how I set up uh, how one would set up investigating uh, whether or not people read a certain type of book uh, if you're only asking a, a certain audience and not asking other audiences what they read have you designed your your experiment incorrectly uh-huh. You can actually ask questions of history that don't necessarily make sense. Let me see if I can think of a possible example. Um, One might look at the historical Jesus and ask, for instance, uh, what Jesus thought of microwaves. Well, (laughs) You know, he would not have encountered a microwave. Um, mm-hmm. That trying to figure out and write an entire book on Jesus's views of microwaves uh, is a project that is probably doomed to failure simply because you're 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 asking uh, a question that is unanswerable. Uh, uh, whether or not Jesus had foreknowledge of, of microwaves, uh, because uh, as the Gospel of John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, uh, and the Word was with God, uh, and, and may have uh, knowledge of things that a normal human being would know, and whether or not he ever, as a historical figure, encountered uh, a microwave that are two different things. Yeah. Uh, one thing I was saying we could go use another example, we could have someone who's trying to exegete text and say, what did Jesus think of, say, a vegan lifestyle? And say, well, whatever Jesus said, that probably wasn't first and foremost on his mind. And if you take that kind of question and try and make an argument about this is what historical Jesus thought about this, you're likely going to have some trouble because that wasn't an issue people were talking about then. Correct. Exactly. I mean, I don't. I don't think uh, vegetarianism or veganism uh, 
even the, the diet, they, they may not have had the option to to have a diet that would be a total vegan diet mm -hmm. uh, in that that time period. Uh, Josephus actually talks about the Valley of the Peacemakers uh, at the time of the Jewish War uh, in Jerusalem. So, so clearly people were or buying and selling and making cheese as part of a, a diet staple. You know, something that occurred to me also about how we're doing history is one of the most common objections I get, and this is, I think, another example of anachronism, is when people say, well, look, you know, you have this guy going around, he's doing all these great miracles and such, and no one thinks to write it down until decades later, why wouldn't everyone just do that immediately? And I'll go and say, look, here's what I recommend you consider here. In the ancient world, you'd have two different ways of spreading a message. You could write it down, or you could use word of mouth. Word of mouth is free. It's more reliable. The stories are told in groups. Everyone can tell a story. Everyone who understands the language can tell a story, and it's done instantly. Writing is expensive, it's timely, it reaches fewer people, you have to be able to read to understand writing. If you can't read, you have to depend on someone who can read, and like I said, it costs a lot of money. Which one do you think you're going to use to spread the message? Right. Um, I mean, when we, uh, again, look at, at uh, library science. Mm -hmm. Most people do tend to learn more information by hearing it mm -hmm. than by actually reading it. When you think about your everyday life, you may be listening to the radio as you drive to work. You may be uh, listening to conversation uh, around the water cooler. Uh, you may be uh, hearing way more information than you're actually taking in by reading Right. That doesn't necessarily mean that people in the ancient world didn't read. Right. We're beginning to think with all of the various um, uh, graffiti uh, that we've discovered in, in ancient cities um, that at least at some rudimentary level, lots of folks had at least some knowledge of reading. There's a good uh, article on this or a chapter in a book by uh, Craig Evans. Yep. And uh, he does a chapter in his his book. And I, I Jesus and the remains of his day. Yes, yes, that's it. I uh, thank you for. It. He has a, a great chapter on the question of did Jesus read or not, and he looks not only at biblical passages that seem to reference uh, Jesus reading in the temple or. Uh, perhaps writing something down uh, on the ground. Uh, but he also looks at uh, uh, ancient inscriptions and, and how many statues have people's names carved in them and mm -hmm. information and dedications. And, and someone moving throughout the ancient world and throughout an ancient city was encountering text all the time. Mm. Yeah. And you all can't see this. Unfortunately, I, I see a, uh, Dr. Shepard's webcam here, I hope Tom see what she's going. And it looks like she's looking back on, I'm thinking, a kitchen counter, and it's got books there, and trying to see if books back there. But I'll tell you, if you are interested in Jesus and the remains of his day, 
go to July 16th of last year. We interviewed Craig Evans on that book here. So if you want some more information about that, then yes, that is the place to go. But, and it, it still is just this whole anachronistic approach that people go into. And I like what you said about how we learn a lot more about hearing. Because one of the things I thought of immediately is that if I'm out somewhere and I hear someone tell a joke, for instance, and I really like it, I don't have to hear them tell me that joke five or six times to understand. I can go and tell it to someone else. Now, chances are it won't be verbatim, word for word, which is also usually another mistake because we think things have to be memorized word for word when we read the Gospels. But it will be the same joke still. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that I did just bring up, I do think it is another mistake we make that we live in an age where you can record what someone says, you can make a transcript of it. We could make a transcript of this show if we want to, for instance, and everything would be word for word. And so we go back to the Gospels. It's like, by God, we have to have the very exact words Jesus spoke. And we won't. But we can say we do have the words Jesus spoke. Yeah, but even if you have the words that Jesus spoke, you don't necessarily have the historical Jesus. Right. I mean, there there is the the narrative. I mean, having a transcript of events is not history. It's it's the evidence that is used for a history. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Eunuch are way more than just your words, your right. your facial expressions, and what you're thinking, and what causes you to to do and and think what what you're doing, and you know what causes you to even have this show. That's all part of who right. who you are beyond just what you happen to say or what might be recorded in one of these sessions that somebody would take down as a transcript. Right, and and that's the thing about about the historical Jesus is there is so much to learn, and there's so much more to learn. Uh, my concern always is that by focusing so much as historians of the Bible tend to do on the words and actions, we're missing. You know, they worry about did this miracle happen or didn't that miracle happen? Or in the Jesus seminar, um, did Jesus say exactly these words when you're comparing the synoptics? Um, the one gospel author will have the quote a little differently than another gospel author. What exactly was was Jesus's word? And I I think by focusing down on all of that, you're missing questions like what was Jesus's economic status? Mm-hmm. Uh, how much uh, money did Jesus or Jesus's family actually have? Uh, personally, I'm I'm not entirely certain when someone is called uh, to register for a census, as Jesus was, as Jesus's family was, um, that the Romans would have been particularly interested in uh, registering those who were destitute, because the whole point of census is to be able to ultimately collect taxes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so was Jesus's family very poor or destitute, or did they have some means? Mm-hmm. And so I think a good uh, study of the 
uh, tax system and the purpose of a census and uh, and the economy of of the ancient world would go very far to helping us understand Jesus. And then looking in the text of what kind of stuff did he and the disciples actually seem to own? Yeah. I mean, and, and, they and had a treasurer, for instance. Yeah, exactly. And so, so the question is how much did a sword cost in the ancient world so that one of them yeah. could lop off an ear at Jesus's arrest? Yeah. Um, um, and, and how much did cloaks cost and all those sort of uh, sandals, how, how much did sandals cost? And all of those things could, could yeah. come together to form uh, an economic history of Jesus yeah, so, beyond, beyond his words and, and, and miracles. Something else I was thinking about his words and such, it's that it goes back to the culture thing. One of the things I like to tell people is that the, the ancient world of Israel was what we call a high-context society, where a huge amount of background knowledge about day-to-day matters and such was already assumed. And we live in a low-context society, where if you hear a news report about some country, you have to be told something in the report about what this country is, because most people who are watching won't know. And so when you read the New Testament, especially the epistles of Paul, there's a whole lot of background knowledge that's sitting there. People say, why wasn't this brought up? Why wasn't this brought up? And it's not brought up. I mean, Paul doesn't say as much about historical Jesus, for instance, because he's already been to a lot of these churches. They already believe in Christianity. They already know about the historical Jesus. They don't need to hear all this again. And we could say in some ways the same thing happens today. I could be out somewhere with... No, I think that's suppose, for instance, hypothetically, that you and your husband met with my wife and I. I could say something to her at the table, and she would just bust out laughing, and you two could be watching and saying, did we miss something? What happened? Because, like many couples, we have some inside terms that are great jokes for us that will make us laugh inevitably. That's just part of the way it is. So even if we have the words, again... There's a whole lot of background knowledge that we need to have as well. Exactly. I did like talking about the whole economics of Jesus, too. Although we have to be careful because, as we can tell, there are people who will go the whole way and make things very extreme. I've heard those Word of Faith teachers, for instance, say, you've seen Jesus' clothes. Jesus was wearing... The designer clothes of his day. He was living a life of wealth and luxury and such. And yet, I mean, you can also look at Jesus as, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests. Son of man has no place to lay his head. Right. But on the, the other hand, the, the uh, disciples who were fishermen seem to have boats and nets mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and stuff. I, you know, yeah. I don't I think necessarily <laughs> that they were the highest class, but again, I don't think mm-hmm. they were destitute. Um, if you think about it, uh, any movement in, in history, those who don't have resources at all um, aren't necessarily going to be the movers and shakers uh, who go against uh, the establishment. I think it's uh, those who have some modest means, uh, at least can start to to make a difference. 
uh, because they're not worried about if you're limited about worrying about where your next meal is coming from, uh, you're going to be focused on, on that. If you're a little comfortable and you don't have to necessarily worry too much about what's in your refrigerator, um, you can start uh, worrying about things beyond your immediate needs. And I, I think that's where we want to situate uh, the, the disciples and Jesus as someone who at least had enough to get by and could start looking, uh, uh, picking up their heads and looking at the world around them instead of just focusing on, on their own immediate problems. Yeah, before we go further, at that time, I think I'm going to just go ahead and let people know about that. You're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, as I said earlier, and everything we do here is listener-supported. And we could really use your support. Seriously, we could. Um, go to my website if you want to, deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a place on the side that says, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And there's a link in there. You click on that, it takes you to Risen Jesus. As you've heard from the show, that's the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make a donation, and then you get in touch with me or Audi or Mike or Debbie and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. Favor, make sure we get that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also support us by buying some ebooks on Amazon, some I've written. Well, one I've written, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christians. And some I've co-written, such as Defining Inerrancy, or Groundless, or God and Natural Disasters. And there's another way you can support us as well, and that's by buying jewelry. And since I've got Dr. Shepard on here, I think she could probably assure me that for the most part, women love getting jewelry, don't they? Well, I know I do. Yeah. And guys... If you got that special lady in your life, maybe your wife, your girlfriend, maybe your mother or daughter, for instance, and you want to get her some jewelry, do it for us. Go to <clears throat> Premier Jewelers. The access code is LOVE. My friend Lena Cluster runs it. If you need some help, get in touch with me. I'll do what I can to help you out. Whatever you buy for that lady in your life, we will get a we will get twenty five percent of that purchase, whatever it is. So, guys, I mean, if if you're married, like I always say, you can buy something for your wife to make up for that screw up that you did recently, or you can buy something to make up for that screw up that I know you're going to make in the future. Yes, yes, you will, and yes, I, I see you laughing there, Doctor Shepard. I think you know this very well. <laughs> I don't know. Let's not talk about. Mistakes in marriages. That's- <laughs> yeah, uh, unfortunately, we all make them. Um, Dr. Shepard, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Well, yes, I I am a, a faculty member at, at Duke Divinity School, and I, I do want to encourage all your listeners to think about uh, supporting the local. School of Theology or Schools of Theology of, of their particular denomination or even uh, a School of Theology uh, of which they are aware. Uh, because students today uh, going into the ministry, going into uh, 
clergy professions do not get paid very well. Mm-hmm. And it's, education is expensive, sadly. And um, uh, we don't want uh, our, our seminary graduates being so strapped with debt that they can't minister effectively because they're, they're paralyzed by, by heavy burdens. So do think of, of supporting uh, your, 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 your favorite uh, school of theology by, by sending some money their way so that, you, that uh, students can defer the cost of, of theological education. Yeah, I can assure people, if uh, you think many of us who do ministry are in it for the money, we are not. If we wanted to make a lot of money, we would be in a hole of feared. Sorry, but Joel Osteen just doesn't represent most of us out there. Now, when we were talking about the disciples just now, I think one of the things that, you know, about their economic success, me think about another way, because you talk about them being fishermen, and so a lot of people can say about these, about the disciples, like, where, see, his disciples were these poor, ignorant fishermen who didn't have any learning whatsoever. And, hey, you know what? That's even in the Bible because it says that these people, in Acts it says, they, they are not educated. So, see, his disciples were obviously just very foolish, gullible people, didn't understand the world. And so why should we take them seriously? And that's just as much a bad reading, isn't it? I, I think it is. Uh, one of the things that always troubled me when I was at school is I, I heard this theory that the disciples were not not at all educated. Mm-hmm. But yet, uh, I wonder sometimes, what is wrong with adult education? If you are a, a disciple and you encounter and learn from Jesus, who went by the, they called him rabbi, which is teacher, um, uh if you're you're learning uh, and and spending time following Jesus, and you realize uh, how important the event was after the resurrection and and Pentecost, mightn't you wish to uh, gain a little bit of skill of, uh, in writing, or might you not wish to uh, use a scribe or amunensis uh, to record some of of the stories of of your own encounters? Of, Jesus. We know even Paul in some of his letters will close a letter with, um, I write this in my own hand, implying that he had dictated most of the letter and then was picking up the pen and writing uh, uh, a note uh, by himself, but that he probably had a scribe assisting him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why, why would we think that uh, just because someone might not have a, a certain level of literacy at one point, they couldn't gain it later, or they couldn't uh, have access to somebody who would be literate on their behalf. Yeah. When this comes up, it's often put in the, in the talk of science, for instance, in the ancient world, and con- trying to contrast it today. I mean, for instance, today, like me Christians, I do it from the virgin birth, and yet you have so many people who say, well, you know what? We know today that virgins don't give birth, or we know that dead people stay dead. And I'm just like I'm saying, look, if you want to make this as your argument, then please tell me when did modern science establish all these things and make these great discoveries? Because back then, Joseph wanted to divorce Mary at the time because he knew exactly what it took to make a baby. And when people died back then, 
they actually buried them because they knew just as well as we do that dead people do stay dead. I mean, sure, these people didn't know modern science. They didn't know all about death like we do. But they sure knew enough knowledge to know that dead people stay dead. Well, you know, the, in, in Christianity, that, that might be the case, Nick. But uh, in the ancient uh, uh, Roman world, there were there was actually a day that was a, a festival uh, set aside. I think it was in the month of May, where they worried about the uh, unburied the ghosts of the unburied dead infecting Roman houses. Mm-hmm. They would uh, have a, a ceremony where they would clang cymbals and uh, throw beans over their shoulders and try to chase the dead out of their their homes, which is why we have the the legends sometimes that uh, marriages in May are uh, unlucky marriages. It comes from uh, those pagan uh, ceremonies and rites. Mm. Um, Christians uh, uh, were, however, uh, in the Jewish uh, mode of of tradition. When you think about it, uh, Jesus read in the temple, um, he uh, attended uh, Jewish festivals. He would travel from uh, Jerusalem, uh, from the Galilee region down to Jerusalem, and he would uh, uh, worship in the temple. So he was Jewish, and a lot of the burial mm-hmm. practices and burial customs that, to which he, with which he would have, and the disciples would have been familiar, would have been those of of Judaism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can understand concern about ghosts. I mean, I think even in Judaism, they sometimes had that, but I think there was also, to be fair, a difference between saying that someone's spirit might come and such to saying someone's whole body might come right out of that tomb. They knew back then, they knew back then that didn't happen. I mean, it's, it's not like we've discovered so much in modern science that now we know those miracles couldn't happen and those poor, ignorant, stupid people back then didn't know that. Yeah, the the interesting thing about like Lazarus' story is is not just the the miracle itself, but but I always find uh, it, what is very interesting is the uh, knowing the history of um, uh, ancient rules for cleanliness and purification. Mm-hmm. Um, Lazarus was declared dead. He comes back from, from the dead. And uh, even though one would become uh, unpure or defile themselves by corpse impurity, uh, Jesus tells everybody, you know, Lazarus's relatives to go and unbind him to touch the formerly dead corpse. And they would, in theory, uh, have corpse impurity. And then a few days later, if you're looking at the, the gospel and reading the time sequence, uh, suddenly Jesus is in, in the home having a, a meal with Lazarus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that tells you something about uh, Jesus's view of of the rules about cleanliness and uncleanliness. And and uh, there might be something we can take away from that. Uh, Jesus was not afraid to, to eat with sinners, but he's also not afraid to eat with those who are designated unclean. Yeah, I think something else could add to that is that back in the Jewish belief system, it was also believed that the soul of a person would stay around the corpse for three days 
and then realize where this is a lost cause and go off on its way. Lazarus was resurrected on the fourth day. I think there's a reason for that. And I, I think knowing all those historical details and, and reflecting on them help to inform and understand the, the stories and the, the points that are being made about the events in the past. They help modern historians uh, interpret uh, uh, what is going on. And I think that's all good and, and uh, uh, worthwhile. You have a subsection also on biographies, and it's pretty much the near consensus in most New Testament scholars that the Gospels are Greco-Roman biographies. And I think this is another case where we can read anachronisms into a text, because so often we look and say, well, why don't we hear anything more about Jesus' childhood? And then you hear all these stories. Jesus went to India when he was a child and then came back and such. And I tell people, look, you go and read Plutarch's biographies or any other biographies, there's very little about a person's childhood because we might be interested in that today. It doesn't mean they were. Right. Um, it isn't necessarily just just biographies. Mm. Uh, when you think also about a, a different type of, of literature, which are the uh, uh, orations of praise and blame, mm-hmm. the panegyrics, mm-hmm. uh, those were... Um, Often when somebody took office, like when the emperor uh, took office, uh, there would be a speech in the emperor's honor, and it would highlight uh, special aspects of a person's career. And often the childhood event is brushed over or not focused on very much. Mm -hmm. Uh, They would more focus on uh, the political and uh, military feats that Mm -hmm. an individual would accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a very light hand of anything from from a person's youth that would be covered, and so I'm not entirely certain when one looks beyond the biographies to uh, the panegyrics, uh, which are these speeches that are are done uh, in honor of someone on for special occasions, that one doesn't also see something that might look very similar to the Gospels in a way. Yeah. Isn't it then another case of anachronism then when we approach the Gospels and we hear about biographies and we think biographies means modern biographies and Greco-Roman ones weren't that, we can often say a biography has to be chronological, theirs weren't always chronological. Yeah, correct. And I I think that um, the book you're going to discuss next week Mm -hmm. uh, is probably the best one I've read uh, in, in quite some time about uh, sh- showing uh, some of the features of Greco-Roman biography and its peculiarities because it studies one particular author mm-hmm. and how the same event might be recorded slightly differently even from the one author. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is a very helpful thing and uh, I'm looking forward to tuning in when that show is available so that I can I can hear. I enjoyed reading uh, that book on Plutarch and biography uh, very much, uh, yeah. uh, Mike's, and uh, would be curious to hear what he has to say, get, thing, get the story from the horse's mouth, as it were. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll make sure to pass on your praise to him. Um, uh, when 
I talk about differences in the Gospels. That's one analogy I often use is that suppose Ali and I are sitting here together and maybe we're playing a game or watching a show or doing whatever and there's a knock on the door and I open it and here are some Jehovah's Witnesses. So in, internally I start salivating and such. I was like, oh boy, Christmas has come early. And I was like, come on in, come on in. I'd, I'd love to talk to you about the Bible. And so we come in. And I have a talk with them, and usually before too long, I realize, oh my gosh, we've made a big mistake coming here. And then I'll call people afterwards, just let them know how it went. And I suppose there are two kinds of people I'll call. I'll call my parents, and then I'll call her parents. Now, my parents, they're Christians also, but they're not as theologically in-depth and historically in-depth as my in-laws are. So I'll tell them what I said, but it's kind of going to be a minimum version. Now, when I call Mike and tell him, I'm going to go way more in-depth because he understands a lot more of the in-depth issues. It's still essentially the same story, but the different audiences and such change the story. But no one's being told a lie, and... Sometimes the details might get mixed up. Sometimes they might be omitted and such. But it's still the same story. Correct. I mean, in a way, uh, the passages I always think about are the Pauline passages, which talk about giving children uh, milk and then weaning them off of milk and then bringing them on to, to meat. Mm. Uh, I think we do that naturally. Uh, people are... Uh, at different places in their life, and uh, we need to meet them where they are and help them uh, handle the amount of information and the type of information uh, where they're they're at, and then take them on the road to the next stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in in basic theological education, uh, we don't necessarily start with an in depth. Uh, look at uh, the book of Revelation, we start in our curriculum with mm-hmm. a general introduction to the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And, and we only get into what we call the book courses or a detailed analysis when they have basic background about the New Testament as a whole um, that prepares them for the in-depth look. Something that surprised me about your book also was the kind of ways that you thought history could be informed in your mouth. I've got a, my ministry partner likes to read, I think his name is Turtle Dove, with hypothetical historical situations like, say, for instance, if Charles Lindbergh had been elected president, he he was much more open to the Nazis and we would have liked, could, could the U.S. have been part of the Axis forces in that case instead of the Allies and such and I, I look at I think, well, you know, that, that's kind of cute and such. But I think you look and say, we could actually learn something about history by doing that. Uh, yes, Nick. Uh, what I'm talking about are parallel histories or imaginative histories. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want to too often much use the phrase alternate history uh, because alternate history is a particular genre of science fiction. But when a biblical scholar engages in imagining the past uh, and trying to write out maybe a a fiction story set in the past, uh, 
then that, that Bible scholar is forced to think about details and think about things that they might not ordinarily study. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, there is a, a book by Bruce Longenecker called The Lost Letters of Pergamum, mm-hmm. uh, which was, it came out in, I don't remember the original date, 2003 or so, but uh, it's been re-released or in a second edition recently, 2016. He actually uh, talks about finding a hypothetical uh, uh, cache of letters in Pergamum that ends up uh, being a, a delightful exploration of what would basic life be like for a Christian living under the empire and then ultimately facing Christian persecution. And as he writes the letter, there are these hypothetical fake fiction letters. Uh, He's actually, as a biblical scholar, investigating things like what is the government like in the ancient world in Pergamum? Uh, What are the gladiatorial games? Who puts on a gladiatorial game and how do you logistically arrange one of those to happen? And so all of the historical research that is being done there helps inform and and add uh, information that he can then go back and apply to the first century Christian world and to even um, the early Christian martyrs and and something like the book of Revelation, which which talks about martyrdom. Uh, So this fiction book, even though it's an imagined history, can help a, a, a biblical scholar uh, think of new questions to investigate uh, in, pure, in a more pure historical uh, mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm seeing thing about this and thinking, you know, if a lot of people don't really want to sit down and read an academic tome, but if they read some like historical fiction that is a fake story, but it's set in a true historical context, they could learn a whole lot about history. One of the books I got on my shelf, for instance, is I can't pick any of you off right now, but it's A Week in the Life of a Roman Centurion, and it, it ends up being about the centurion who had a servant who he asked Jesus to hear him. And you go through, and it's a great story. And at the same time, you learn a lot about history. And it... And sadly, of course, this can work both ways. Unfortunately, a lot of people read the Da Vinci Code and thought they were learning a lot about history. They weren't. But fiction can have that kind of power. Yes, it can. The the thing I actually like about uh, Bruce Longenecker's work is at the back, he actually has a a guide or a glossary. Uh, What did he make up and what was uh, factual in each letter Mm -hmm. uh, to help someone who enjoyed reading it uh, sort out the fictional strands from the actual uh, history that that was researched for it. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that was a helpful guide, but yes, you, you can learn, uh, you can learn a lot. And uh, I think instead of having just novelists writing those sort of histories, I think uh, the, the world could do with some biblical scholars writing a few more than are currently out there and available for us to read. Yeah, I think a lot of problems is that something we get into the big intellectual thing, we tend to put aside fiction 
Well, Tom, say, uh, we, we want to be interested in the real world. Strangely, though, we seem to have no problem watching movies and television shows that are entirely fictional and such, but when it comes to books, no, no, both have to be real. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I think it's, again, the, the issue of, of accessibility. Mm-hmm. Um, what is easier for people, and meeting people where they're at, is it, is it easier for uh, a group of first-year students in seminary to read uh, the fictional letters created by Bruce Longnecker to understand the ancient world? Or is it easier for them to dive into uh, a big history that has a lot of footnotes that they have to wade through? And mm-hmm. I think uh, using history as an entryway or a starting point is, is our fiction as an entryway or a starting point is is not a bad idea at all. Yeah, it, it really does also depend on the level of book reading. I mean, we've talked about Mike's book, for instance. Um, let's go back to the one about the resurrection of Jesus. If I was teaching a class on apologetics at my local church, for instance, I'm not going to go to them like and say, okay, I want you all to read this book and we're going to read a chapter once a month and discuss it because a lot of them will pick it up and say, Oh my gosh, I am lost already. Now, I could say, we're going to be talking about the resurrection. I want you to get Gary Habermas and Michael Cohen as a case for the resurrection of Jesus, which is much more reader-friendly in such and that sense, and say, now we're going to go through this and we're going to discuss this together. Or we could even say, go and pick up a copy of The Case for Christ, and we're going to go through that together. And this will help people who aren't academics, but who still do want to learn about the historical Jesus or anything else for that matter. Well, I, I think you've, you've hit on a very interesting point, Nick, in that when we write books, one of the things that the publisher asks us is, who is your intended audience? Are you intending your audience to be um, high-level academics? Are you intending them to be uh, someone who is just interested in the subject and uh, a, a casual church uh, attendee who wants to learn just a little bit more. And once you have in mind who it is for which you're writing, when you're writing, you think about, okay, maybe I won't use the $50 uh, word that is the specialty vocabulary word in uh, my field. Uh, maybe instead I will use plain ordinary language so that someone doesn't need to read sitting there with a with a, a, a dictionary. I, I sometimes tell people uh, in my classes about the experience I had when I was buying, my husband and I were buying our first house. We were going through uh, <laughs> one house looking as a potential uh, buying it and there was something wrong with the closets they were the closet doors didn't hang quite right or it was something that would have been easily fixed with just adjusting the hinges on the the closet door and I looked at this poor realtor and I said oh I'm not worried about the closet door that's adiaphora and adiaphora was a, a word that I had learned in a seminary church history class uh, when we were talking about the creeds, and it's a technical word that means um, essentially uh, 
interesting but not necessary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a, a, a fancy word for that. And it occurred. It didn't occur to me until we left uh, that house that very likely the word adiaphora was not in the vocabulary of the realtor. It wasn't in my vocabulary. <laughs> and, and so I, when it, an author is, is writing for an audience and has the audience in mind, one chooses one's words very carefully so right. that they're clear and accessible. And you've, you've given an excellent example of some books are written for an audience uh, that is immersed in the subject, and some are written for audiences uh, that are uh, coming to the subject for the first time, and, and yeah. they're very different types of prose when you're writing. Yeah, we've talked a lot about history so far and study of a past, and from your knowledge, here's an interesting way you can put it. What do you think the future of history is going to be from here? Um, when I- uh, are, are you asking particularly about uh, New Testament history or, or history in general? Well, let's get start with history in general, and maybe we can broaden it down to New Testament then. Um, I don't think history as a field is ever going to go away. Right. Every once in a while, there are there are challenges to history, but history uh, is something that people are interested in. It's something that's important because I do think we have to learn from our mistakes. Uh, what I do think the, the next phase of history is uh, going to be is a switch from history being in the text to history being multimedia. And you already see this with the History Channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the interesting thing that is coming down the pike is that uh, – now I'm going to, to put on my, my big futuristic hat and start uh, imagining what, what the future. I'm going to be, be the prophetess Beth Shepherd here for the moment. We got also, the stones ready in case you make a mistake. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you collect those stones. But already we see, for example, students that cannot read cursive writing. Uh-huh. Because cursive often is not taught in... Um, elementary schools anymore the way it used to be. Mm. And so I encounter even students in my library when I have them try, when we have scanned digitized items, say a collection of uh, 20th century, early 20th century letters that I want them to create transcripts for so that they're searchable uh, in the, in the library databases by word searches because uh, the software can't read cursive, but it can read a typed transcript. Mm. And I find that uh, uh, most of the students anymore, it's very hard to find one who can read and understand cursive. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can sign their names in cursive, but they can't necessarily read or write cursive on on their own. Mm. Eventually, as we move into things like Alexa, Mm-hmm. We move into uh, voice-activated computers. I think history will no longer be something you read, but it might be something to which you listen or something you watch. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm so glad I had my headphones on 
Right now, when you mentioned the name of the tap figure, of course, if I hadn't, I would have been hearing that beep immediately in the back asking what I could do for him. We, we've got a tap here. I, I love it. But you, you can't just say the name because if we just say it in conversation, it goes off immediately. But yeah, it, it does. Be, it is becoming something we watch and more and more presentations are having to be PowerPoint, for instance, as well. Exactly. So I, I think I think the question is, history will not necessarily, uh, the, the big thing is, is not that history won't be done, but what format will it be done in? And I don't think it will be done necessarily in books as we know them anymore. I think it will move more and more toward multimedia. Do you even actually see an age where maybe the book would be a relic of the past? Um, I think now, now again, I'm, I'm, I'm spouting what may be for some of my colleagues uh, heresy. I talked to. Oh, I'm starting to have nightmares already. Oh, nightmares already. Well, I, I'm sorry, but I, I actually have a colleague here on campus who is in the uh, business library. So the, the, she directs the, the business uh, library like I direct the, the Divinity Library here at Duke. And we had an interesting conversation. Uh, last week, or maybe it was the week before, about the fact that many business students now are, are taking out and circulating audiobooks rather than mm. print. Right. And when I talk to my colleagues in Bible, they say, oh, but what about the footnotes? How can you get footnotes? And, uh, well, it, it's great to talk about footnotes, but what happens when Students rely so much on audiobooks, rely so much on voice-activated uh, technology that uh, students are admitted to seminaries and Bible schools who, who can't read anymore. Mm-hmm. not expected to in school, just like they're not expected to learn and, and have command of cursive. And I think within 20 or 25 years, uh, students will be coming to the these steps and doors of, of uh, higher education, theological education, without the ability to read. Oh, oh my gosh. I, I think my blood just ran cold <laughs> at that point, especially even about a time where even more people aren't reading books. It, look, I'm sorry, that, that's just scary for me to think about. Well, it is, but you know, every once in a while, I don't, I don't own a TV, and uh, I don't subscribe to a newspaper, but I will uh, click on news uh, on the internet. I've, mm. I've got a news feed that that uh, I'm particularly interested in business news, which and and science news, which is what I I tend to read a lot. Um, but even so, three quarters of the news stories are actually video clips. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get frustrated from uh, by them because it, it is it takes me less time to read a news story than it does to wait for the advertisement to spool through. Oh yes, and then actually sit through uh, the news story than it than it does to actually read it. Reading for me is much quicker, mm. uh, but yet uh, it, there must be a fair amount of demand for the video only news feeds because. Uh, sometimes it's harder and harder for me to find a de- text-based news story. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Shepard, we've had a good discussion here. Uh, 
ended on a very frightening note. Hopefully that can be an alarm to people say, hey, we have to do something. We have to change the future now. <laughs> um, yeah, everyone put on your fashion. We're going to try and change the future here. Um, I'd like to thank you for coming on, Bella. Do you have a blog, a website, where people can get in touch with you and want to find out more? Um, I don't actually have a, a blog or, or website, but Fook uh, could always be more than welcome to email me at my uh, address at, at school. It's beth.shepherd, spelled S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D, at div, D-I-V, dot duke, dot E-D-U, and I'd, I'd be happy to uh, uh, correspond with folk if they have more questions about uh, history and the New Testament and uh I look forward to hearing from people, and uh, thank you so much, Nick, for inviting me on on the show. It, it's it was a blast. I've not mm. done a, a podcast format before. Um, mm. you, you've made it very simple, and uh, uh, I wish you all the best. Well, it, it was a lot of fun. It's great to talk to someone who has a great love of books as well, and it's familiar with libraries. And if you if you all want to get familiar with uh, Dr. Shepard's book, The Craft of History and the Study of the New Testament, I'm doing a check right now. At the time of this recording, the paperback is $32.95. The hardcover is $47.95. No Kindle version at this point. Maybe that's coming out in the future and such. Uh, um, Dr. Shepard, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave with a Deeper Waters audience? Well, the only final thought I have to to offer is bless you. Bless you for listening. Bless you for uh, thinking and uh, wanting to learn more about the historical Jesus. And uh, uh, bless you on your own faith journey. I wish you all the best. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. All (laughs) righty. Thank you. I'd like to remind everyone that uh, next week, Mike Lacone is coming on. We're talking about his book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>